Amen. Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9 this Lord's Day as we continue to walk through the book of Hebrews together. Uh, If you've been with us, you know as we've covered uh, the first chapter and then the beginning of chapter 2, we've seen how the writer of Hebrews has made it clear that God is a God who reveals Himself to us and that He has revealed Himself to us in His final Word, which is His Son, Jesus Christ. And so since Jesus has all authority, since Jesus is the final Word of God, then we need to listen to Him. We should not reject this Word that God has given us. There's a a warning that the writer of Hebrews gives us in regards to rejecting His Son and His Word. He has warned us of the wrath that will come if we reject the Word of Christ. And so, as we read last Lord's Day, he tells us not to neglect this great salvation that we have. This, this salvation that puts our focus on the world to come. And that's where the writer of Hebrews is now going to pick up as we look at verses 5-9. through nine. And so out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand together as I read for us our sermon text for today. God has spoken. And this is what His Word says. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside of His control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone." you would pray with me. Lord, there is much that we could ask and much that we could pray for in this moment. But I simply ask this. I ask that you would help us to see Jesus. That you would help us to set our gaze and our focus on Him. That we might rightly understand Your Word of truth that speaks of His glory that we would set our hearts and our minds directly on Him. Help us to see Jesus as we look to Your Word today. This is what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. I've mentioned many times as we have approached God's Word together how important it is to see the big picture. I'll illustrate it this way. Recently, I had the opportunity to go on a mission trip to West Africa. And as I went on that journey, I did what I often do. As I got on the plane, I was, I was very observant as the plane was taking off. I could look across out the window. I could see uh, the ground beneath. And as we went higher in the air, 5,000 feet, 10,000 feet, I could look down through that window and begin to see that this big picture from where we had taken off. And then as we continued our ascent, we got to a point where we were above the clouds. I couldn't look out the wind anymore, but on the plane we were on, there were these little handy monitors, and you could pull up a map, and then I could see a really big picture. Uh, Essentially a picture of the globe, and then here's where we are, and here's where we're going, and here's how far we are on our journey. 
And then as we got closer to our destination, the plane began to descend. And as the plane descended and we went down below the clouds, then I could look again out the window and I could see the city we were about to land in. And then as the plane landed, we could get out of the plane and walk around and we could observe all these details and we could interact with the environment. There's the big picture and there's focusing in on the details. And that's how we are to approach the Word of God. It is so important that we understand the big picture of what's taking place between Genesis and Revelation and that we keep that big picture in mind as we land the plane and we put boots on the ground and we walk around and we interact in the day-to-day details of what's taking place. And this is what the writer of Hebrews has been doing for us. And chapter 1, he gave us this, this big picture, this 35, 40,000 foot view of how we see Christ throughout the Old Testament, how these messianic psalms pointed forward to Jesus. And then, in essence, he landed the plane there in chapter 2 and said, okay, we need to pay closer attention to this salvation that we have through Jesus. This method of studying the Scripture this way, of seeing the big picture and focusing in on the particulars and seeing how everything points to Jesus is what we call biblical theology. It's our theology of the Bible. And what biblical theology is, it's a way of reading the Bible as one big story written by one divine author, our Creator God, through which everything points to Jesus Christ. So that we can read the book of Hebrews and see how these things were fulfilled in Jesus. We can go back to the Psalms and see how those things were pointing forward to Jesus. And in order to better understand biblical theology, God has given us books like the book of Hebrews through which we can study and we can learn so much more about how God has been unfolding His his plan since the beginning of creation. We saw in chapter 1 these psalms mentioned that were to point people forward to look for the Messiah. Now we see in this passage we read today another psalm, Psalm 8, and yet it is not a messianic psalm. Now this was a psalm that God's people would read. It was a song by King David that would point them backward to look at creation. So why is the writer of Hebrews including this psalm in this passage? Well, that's what we're going to consider as we look to God's Word today. And as we look to it, I hope we'll get a better understanding of biblical theology, a better understanding of how all these things point to Jesus. And I pray, ultimately, as I mentioned before, that God would help us to see Christ as we look to His Word today. And so we'll begin with the first point there in your outline. This reminder we see in the text that God created man, the first Adam, to rule over creation. God created man, the first Adam, to rule over creation. So the writer of Hebrews has been making this argument that that Jesus is supreme. Uh, There was a, a false teaching in this day that we talked about a few weeks ago about how they believed that the Messiah would be several figures who would be ruled over by an archangel. And the writer of Hebrews is countering that by saying, no, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the, the, the true fulfillment of all Scripture. He's the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And, and He's above the angels. And so now, the writer of Hebrews comes back to this language about angels. But, but now it's not just Jesus He's talking about. He's talking about us. He says in verse 5, for It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. 
He's been talking about neglecting this great salvation. He's been calling us to look ahead to what will one day be. And now he's saying that that world to come, God did not create that to be ruled by the angels. He says He created it to be ruled by man. And to make that point, he goes back to Psalm 8. Now here he reads from verses 4-6, through but I want to read for us a little bit more of that psalm. I'm going to begin in verse 3 of Psalm 8. Now this is a song by King David. Uh, this is David praising God for the majesty of His name. And so he's thinking about the, the, the greatness of God as he writes these words. Verse 3, he says this in Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, I think many of us in this room can identify with what David is saying here. I mean, have you ever had that experience where you went out on a clear night and you could just look up and you could see that the stars and, and just all their, their wonder, and as you're looking at that, you're just getting a glimpse of the vastness of the universe and the world we live in. And perhaps in that moment, you feel a little bit small. <laughs> Perhaps in that moment you're looking at the vastness of all that and then you're looking at yourself and you're thinking, oh my goodness, look at the greatness of all that God has created. And we can feel a bit small when we consider that greatness. But notice what the Holy Spirit does through David here. He doesn't respond by saying man is nothing. He responds by pointing out who God created man to be. So he says this in verse 5, Yet, you have made... Him made who? He's speaking of man. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. And you have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. David is going back to creation. He's describing what we see in Genesis chapter 1, where God creates all things. And in His creation, He creates man. And this is what He says to man. Genesis 1.26 Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so just there we see, man is not some insignificant creation. We are image bearers of God. He says, let us make them after our likeness. And then He says this, let them have dominion. Here he gives role and responsibility to man. He says, let them have dominion. Let them rule, is what God says, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God's original design in creation is for man to rule and have dominion. And David here picks up on that in Psalm 8. And he says it this way. He says he put everything in subjection under his And so the picture we have in creation is that man is the the pinnacle of God's creation. That that God creates the the, the wonder of the universe and the the world and the vegetation and all the animals, but but the the prized possession there in creation is His creation of Adam and Eve. And He gives them dominion and He gives them rule. And He places them there in the garden. Now, God gives them boundaries. He doesn't tell them that their rule is ultimate. He doesn't tell them they have dominion over all things created. No, God is the one who ultimately is in charge. But He gives them role and responsibility. 
And to remind them of this, God places a tree there in the garden, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God tells them, you're not to eat of that tree. Why? Well, one of the reasons was because God was reminding them that He had ultimate dominion, that He was God. They were not. They had role and responsibility, but they weren't sovereign. God is sovereign. And so we see this in the created order. And so, back to Hebrews chapter 2, The writer of Hebrews here is is bringing this up to say that the world to come was created to be ruled by man. He goes back to Psalm 8. He says, look look at God's created order and look at what David says about man. And then he adds this to it. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. And so here's this picture we have that, that man is to be in charge, in control, all things in subjection to him. And yet, for the Hebrews receiving this word, they knew uh, that was not their experience. And for you and I hearing this word this morning, we know that that, that's not our experience. We don't completely rule and reign. All of creation is not in subjection to us. And so the writer of Hebrews picks up on this, and he says that, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. Well, the question is, why? And if you're familiar with the creation story, you know why. And that's where we'll go next. Point two there in your outline. The first Adam sinned and was subjected to death. The first Adam sinned and was subjected to death. And so we go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and we see this created order and the goodness of all of it. But then in Genesis 3 we see that Adam and Eve sinned against God. They disobeyed His instruction. They rebelled against them. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in doing that, They corrupted His created order. That they corrupted God's good design. And so God gave them a consequence. He was gracious to them. He warned them ahead of time that on the day that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. And He didn't didn't bring death immediately in the sense that they physically died in that moment. But death immediately came now because now they're going to die one day. But before they die, he gave other consequences. So for example, to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, he said that Adam's offspring would bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so notice the language here. It goes from all of creation is subject to man, which will be under his feet, to to now creation is going to strike back against the feet of man. In fact, creation is going to push back against man. He goes on to tell Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. So now, this ground that you were to rule and to reign over, it's cursed because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God tells Adam now that the created order has been corrupted. No longer is it under your feet. Now it is going to push back against you. It is going to strike back against you. And ultimately, what's going to happen is you're going to die, Adam. You're going to die, Eve. And your offspring are going to taste death. See, before the fall, Adam and Eve were created to live for eternity. But but now they will die. They won't be over death. Death will be over them. And so this is the world we see now. We're in a world that is devastated and is corrupted. 
We, we do not rule over the created order. We are ruled by many aspects of it. And so, think about perhaps if you, you've ever seen a lion. If any of you in this room have ever encountered a live lion, there were probably steel bars between you and the lion. You were probably in a zoo. So you, you might feel some sense of control or rule while you're walking around the zoo and the lion's in the cage, but that's going to be very different if you're walking through the jungle and there's no cage around the lion. At that point, who's going to be ruling and who's going to be running? Well, we see then the created order over man, not in subjection to him. And we see that in so many other ways. We have all kinds of devices and inventions these days where we can predict the weather, we, we can control our environments, our, our climates. You, you can probably have a device on you right now you could look at and see what the weather's going to be today, what the temperature's going to be today. You, you left a home where you probably controlled the climate, had it at the temperature you wanted. You got in a car and you controlled the temperature, put it at the temperature you wanted, came to the church, and I realized there is no one temperature everybody here wants. So some of you are burning up right now and some of you are freezing right now, but we make an attempt at least to control the environment. But can we control the weather? We can look and see when the hurricane is coming, but we can't stop the hurricane. We can issue warnings that the floodwaters are rising, but we can't ultimately stop the floodwaters. We can issue alarms and alerts about the tornado or the tsunami or whatever else is coming our way, but we can't control nature because it's not subject to us yet. Because we are subject to it in this moment. And there may be times when we don't realize that. We, we may feel that we are in control. Maybe we will figure out ways in the future to control the lion and the hurricane. But there is one thing that we will never control that the writer of Hebrews points out to us. And that is death. We will be subject to it. We will not rule over it. It will come to all of us. And not just death in and of itself, the process of dying. Now, this is what the writer of Hebrews pointed out in the first chapter. We are wearing out. All things are wearing out. Like garments, we wear out. And some of you know this. We don't have to wait till the last part of our life to feel this. We can feel the effects of our bodies wearing out. I enjoy, let me rephrase that, I used to enjoy home remodeling. <laughs> I enjoy doing projects on our house and, and doing creative things, and, and, and we still do a lot of those things, but I enjoyed that a lot more in my 20s than I do in my 40s. And I can't imagine I'll even want to talk about it in my 60s. Because in my 20s, I could do a lot more and a lot less time and think about it a lot less later on. I didn't feel it. And now I wake up some mornings and I don't know why I'm hurting the way I'm hurting. I will turn to my wife and say, did you beat on me in the middle of my sleep? Did I get run over by a bus and didn't know it? Because I feel age. I feel like I'm getting worn out. Now, in all honesty, some of you are saying, well, pastor, that's because you're out of shape. So maybe if you went to the gym, and honestly, I haven't been to the gym since ever, but 
I'm sure there's a gym out there I could go to and I could get in better shape and then I could do a little bit more home remodeling and then it wouldn't wear on me as much and I could take those magic diet pills or whatever else it is and I could go on this diet or that diet and I could get in better shape where I didn't feel it so much yet. But there's no diet plan or gym membership that is going to hold off death. We will die. Whether you are in great health or in poor health, there is no cure for death. It reigns over us. We, we are subject to it. And so what the writer of Hebrews here is doing is he, he's setting the stage here for us to see the glory of Christ and what He's done by showing us that, that while God created us to rule and created things to be in subjection to us, they're not like that yet because everything is marked by and devastated by the fall, including ourselves. And, and if that's the end, if that's all there is, if that's all He gives us, then that's a rather hopeless scenario. And I'll remind you that for many of our friends and family and people in our community, that is their hopeless scenario. They have no hope of glory. They have no hope of Christ. They are living for this life and this life only as if it is the only thing there is because for them, it is the only thing that is. But the writer of Hebrews here tells us there is something phenomenally better for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's where we go next. Point three. You see, Jesus, the second Adam, defeated death and restored the hope of Psalm 8 for man. Jesus is the second Adam. Now for some of you, that, that might be a new phrase. Where does that come from? Well, primarily we see this in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is unpacking biblical theology for us. And he's helping us by going to the first Adam in creation and comparing him to Jesus, who he calls the, the, the final Adam, the last Adam, or the second Adam. And he's helping us to see how where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. He helps us to see where through the first Adam, we're going to die, we, we inherit death. Through the second Adam, we can receive eternal life. He helps us to see how the first Adam was given instruction to live a righteous life by God and he disobeyed, where the second Adam, Jesus, received this instruction on how to live a righteous life and he righteously, perfectly obeyed, even to the point of death on the cross. And so what we see in the Scripture and where our hope then comes from is that Jesus is the second Adam who defeated death and restored the hope of Psalm 8 for us. We see this in verse 9 where the writer of Hebrews says this, but we see Him. Now remember, he, he just made this, this strong statement that here's how the world's supposed to be, and yet we don't see it. But what do we see? We see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Now again, Jesus is supreme over the angels. This reference here, for a little while was made lower, I believe is a reference to a couple of things, to the incarnation, to Jesus taking on humanity. It's a reference to the cross and to the humility that Jesus suffered on the cross. It is a temporal statement that points us to an eternal reality that Christ truly is supreme and we can see Him. 
says, what we see is we see Jesus. And how do we now see Him? Crowned with glory and with honor. And how does He receive that glory and honor? By defeating death. That that thing that we are subject to, Christ conquered it. See, Christ, the Scripture tells us, He died on the cross in my place and in your place. Scripture says that, that all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory and the wages of sin is death. We all deserve death for our sin. But God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And they put His body in a tomb. But He defeated death. Because when they came back three days later, He had risen from the dead. And so the Scripture tells us if, if we will confess Jesus as Lord and if we believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. Not just that He died on the cross, but that God raised Him from the dead. We will be saved. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we see what, what has happened here. Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor. Why? He says, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. And so Psalm 8 is is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. David is writing it. He is looking back to creation. He's writing this about Adam in the garden, in creation. But the Scripture here is saying, but Psalm 8 is also pointing us forward. It's helping us to see that there will be a day when we reign. There will be a day when we rule. There will be a day when all creation is subject to us. And that is the day that will be fulfilled in and through Christ Jesus. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 1.22, He put all things under His feet. 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. So God creates man to rule and for creation to be in subjection to man. Man sins against God and now man is in subjection to creation. Jesus, the perfect man, lives a perfect life and goes to the cross and dies in our place. And now He overcomes sin and death. And one day in a new creation, we will realize what was written in Psalm 8. It will be true of us again in and through Christ. And this is good news that should give us great hope. Because it is a reminder to us today that death does not have the final word. It's a reminder to us that cancer does not have the final word. It's a reminder to us that genetic anomalies do not have the final word. It's a reminder to us that broken promises and broken relationships and the devastation and the scars of sin that we see all around us, they do not have the final word. The final word belongs to Christ and Christ alone. And friend, that is why we need to see Jesus. That is why we need to set our gaze on Jesus. Because in this world, we will have turmoil and we will have trouble. But what has Jesus done? Jesus has overcome this world. 
And He has called us to put our hope and our faith and our trust in Him where? In the world to come because this world is passing quickly, but that world will reign forever. And we can get a glimpse of what is to come by looking back at what was. And what we see in the garden before the fall and God's perfect creation gives us a glimpse of what we will one day experience in and through Christ. And so the call for us is to set our gaze on Him. And that's our final point this morning. Point four. In the world to come then, Christians will reign with Christ over a new creation. In the world to come, Christians will reign with Christ over a new creation. I've taken you to this passage many times. I will take you there again this morning. Revelation 21. As we consider what is to come, hear the words of our Lord. This is what He says through the Apostle John and this vision He gives Him. Revelation 21, beginning in the first verse. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first earth, the first heaven, had passed away and the sea was no more. All these things have, have passed now. He is looking at the beauty of the new creation. He says, Then I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So we're back in the garden. Where we're back to God walking through the garden with man. That there's no separation now between God and man. That there's no devastation of sin and rebellion. Now we have perfect fellowship with God and man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So he says, we, we, we set our gaze on Jesus and we look ahead, and what do we see? No more hurricanes. No more storms that, that devastate and wipe out entire cities. No, no more cancers, no more illnesses, no more sicknesses. No more abusive parents. No more opioid addictions. No more teenage deaths. No more car wrecks on the bypass caused by a drunk driver. No more devastating effects of sin on our life. No more children's hospital. No more no hospitals. No more of any of it. No more funerals. No more phone calls in the middle of the night giving us the news of devastation that we never thought would come our way. No more, he says, no more, no more, no more. Never again. Because he has made all things new. He has gone back to Psalm 8. He has gone back to man. And for those in Christ, he has restored them to this place in creation. We're not ruled by the lion. And we're not ruled by death. It is in subjection to us. And we reign and we rule with Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews here, in writing to people who were experiencing a difficult time in their faith, he says to them this, fix 
your eyes on Jesus. And I can't help but wonder if that's not the same word that every single one of us needs. Not just this day, but every day. Whether it's anxiety and worry over bills and debts, or it's concern about your health or the health of another, or it's the devastation of loss and the grief of suffering, whatever it might be, God wants us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Not on the pain. Not on the devastation. Not on the turmoil. Not on the lostness of man. Not on the devastating consequences of sin. Christ has conquered sin and death. And He has called us to fix our gaze on Him. And so the application of God's Word this morning is to see Jesus. And when you encounter the things of this world that are not in subjection to you yet, the call is to fix your eyes on Jesus. And when the business falls apart, when the bills can't be paid, when the storm wipes out everything you own, the call for us is to look and to say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I will stand on the firm foundation of my faith no matter what this world may hold. And when things get worse, and when you watch the people you love suffer, and when you experience devastating loss that cripples you, and you don't think you can get out of bed, the call from Scripture is to fix our eyes on Jesus. And to say to those circumstances and situations and to that loss, I will glory in my Redeemer. And I will fix my heart and my faith and my trust in Him. Friends, that is the only hope we have in this world and that is the only hope we have in the world to come. And so if your hope is in anything else, the call from Scripture, the call from God Himself to you today is this. Turn. And fix your eyes on Him. The Gospel is not a get-rich-quick or let's-just-make-it-all-better scheme. The Gospel is not a turn-that-frown-upside-down. <laughs> the Gospel is not your best life now. The gospel is this. In this world, you will have trouble. But Jesus has overcome this world. And you can either live for this world or you can live for the one that He is preparing for us. Put your eyes on Him. And if you've never done that, if you've never turned and placed your faith and your hope fully in Him, the call from God's Word today is to do that. Trust in Jesus. Hope in Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. If you would join me in praying to that end, if you would stand together. Lord, it is so tempting to look to this world for comfort, for hope, and for peace. And yet, Lord, when we look around, we, we find so much devastation, so much loss, so much suffering. 
But Lord, we thank You that You have indeed overcome this world. We thank You for the Gospel truth. We thank You for this reminder from the book of Hebrews that, that this is not what You created for us to have for all eternity. That, that creation has been corrupted and devastated and, and we experience the effects of that every day. But there's something greater for us to put our hope in. There's something greater that lies ahead and it comes through fixing our eyes on Jesus. And so Lord, I, I pray specifically today for anyone here who, whose eyes, whose hearts, whose gaze is, is not fixed entirely on Jesus. For, for anyone whose hope is in a career, a retirement account, for anyone whose, whose gaze is on a, a relationship, another person, for, for anyone who's just so overcome and, and overwhelmed with, with sickness and disease and, and devastation, they, they, they can't see beyond it. For, for all of us, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to look up and to fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the founder and he is the perfecter of our faith. He is our only hope in a hopeless world. Would you help us to live for His glory and His alone? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.